I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. 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 Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I am Tom Ramalamadingdong, Bionic. Hmm. Would that be like, ooh, ee, ooh, ah, ah, wing, wang, wang? <laughs> there's, a, there's a method to Tom's madness, and it is madness this week, because we have a very special guest with us for a classic Future Quake show, someone that we struggled high and low to get a hold of, a very busy person, but has been gracious to come on our show to talk about his very interesting book. We have with us this week Christopher Knowles, the author of The Secret History of Rock and Roll, and we're going to talk about evidence of the mystery religions revived in modern music. And Christopher Knowles, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on Future Quake. Thank you. It is a pleasure to have you on our show. Appreciate you making time on your very busy schedule for us. You know, I found out about your book, uh, The Secret History of Rock and Roll of All Places, on the website, The Daily Grail, which is mm-hmm. a place where we actually get a lot of the stories that we read here about yeah. what's, what's going on in the spirit world, you know. It's sort of like reading the Akashic Record. We just go there and download it for our news bits. Uh, and, you, you know, uh, I had also learned about your blog, The Secret Sun, which is a, mm-hmm. a very fascinating place as well, too. And we have a lot of material we're going to cover today, uh, mm-hmm. sort of like Smoking the Bandit, you know, in a short time to get there. So could we begin by just having you provide us a very, very brief capsule of your background? Well, I, um, I'm a writer. Uh, I've written for various magazines, usually sort of in the music and comics fandom world. I wrote a book called uh, Our Gods Were Spandex, The Secret History of Comic Book Heroes. I wrote a book called, uh, actually co-wrote a book called The Complete X-Files. Hmm. And then um, this new book, and then I blog on The Secret Sun, where I sort of look into the esoter- esoteric underpinnings of uh, popular culture and uh, related Subjects. Okay. That's brief and clean there. Okay. Hey, if you could back off just a hair from your microphone, we're getting a little uh, little feedback there. Actually, it sounds like FM plus, which is great. We, mm-hmm. I love our Skype connections here. We get good fidelity. I just need you back up just a little bit. Now, you, okay. you, you, you hail out of the Big Apple, is that right? No, I'm in New Jersey. Oh, New Jersey. Excuse me about that. Well, you're within a stone's throw, I presume. A stone's throw of uh, the Big Apple? Yeah. Uh, not really. Oh, <laughs> but really? I, I, I could, you know, I, I did used to commute to the Big Apple. I used to, I worked okay. in the Empire State Building for eight years, so. Okay, so you're you're still a few roundabouts away. Yeah, which is a dump, by the way, that building. Well, but it's, it's New Jersey's a place where you have to turn right to turn left, if I remember. Yeah, it's got some pretty bizarre traffic patterns. <laughs> okay. But wonderful people, of mm-hmm. course, including our Futurian listeners from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got a lot. I've got a lot of questions concerning some fascinating information uh, from this book of yours, mm-hmm. and a lot more notes. Maybe the most I've ever taken from a book in a long time that I plan to use in my research and writing in the future. I don't know cool. if they call that plagiar- plagiarizing, but probably drop your name in there in it. But it was very useful to me. It appeared to me, having read your book from cover to cover. 
that it really is an excellent primer uh, for for whether people are interested in rock and roll or not in our audience, which they, most of them should be of the, the age and lineage of them. It, if they're students of this kind of subject matter, and particularly the ancient mystery religions, because she put an excellent primer together in about 90 pages, uh, followed by what I thought was sort of a liner notes type descriptive style of modern rock music acts that line up with the archetypes that you've uncovered there. Mm-hmm. What, what inspired you to write this book and uncover the, this intriguing premise of the associations of classic rock to mystery religions? Well, I sort of grew up where I was listening to sort of the tail end of the classic age of rock and roll. I was born in 66, so... You know, I grew up with my aunts and uncles who were all big Beatles and Stones and Elvis Presley and all the rest of it. So I spent a lot of time at my grandmother's house when I was young, so I would just sort of dig in and listen to all those great old records. But, I, you know, my family, a lot of people in my family were professional musicians, so I spent a lot of time in nightclubs and in churches and uh, various places like that where, you know, family members were playing. So I sort of had this very immersive um, ex- education experience into, into music and, and musical culture, and also, you know, religion, too, because uh, I was an old-school Methodist, and, you know, the sort of Sundays were from, from dawn to dusk kind of church experience, which was really a very wonderful experience that I'm very grateful for in my background. And also, uh, strangely enough, went from that to uh, hanging around the punk rock scene in, in Boston. And it was really they, you didn't get into the punk rock from the Methodist Church, did you? <laughs> no. They weren't connected? No. Okay. <laughs> no. Because uh, I could see punk rock with a covered dish, where, you know, you'd have to yeah, bring the covered go. dish for it. <laughs> no, but we did some great um, productions of, like, Godspell and uh, Jesus Christ Superstar in my church. But really? Anyway, wow. Yeah, let's get the hand of there. Um, anyway, so... Uh, Punk rock um, was really an interesting experience because it really was like a mystery religion. It was sort of the secret hidden world with its own codes of conduct and language and dress and, and, and styles of recognition and secret symbols, all of that. And, and interestingly enough, too, it was also like a very, uh, very moralistic uh, subculture. It was what was called the straight edge, and it was like no drinking, no drugs, sometimes no sex, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. It was it was a very puritanical um, mindset. And, it, you know, later on when I read about the uh, the, the Mithraic uh, mystery cults, you know, which were very ascetic and into self-denial and all these sort of things, but also, you know, all that violent iconography that they had. And, you know, I just started connecting the dots that I just saw that the same process was repeating itself and repeating itself, you know, for, for the same reasons, because the mystery cults really arose out of um, boredom and disillusionment with the state cults. You know, the state mm-hmm. cults were very formal. It was almost like sort of the best uh, analogy is sort of just imagine like, you know, high church, mm-hmm. Anglican or Catholic, yeah. you know, very formal, very ritualized. So the that's really the uh, the origin point of mm. the, the mystery religions. You know, it's interesting too because really studying them. You know, uh, I realized how much you know just misunderstanding there is of of the mystery religions, and a lot of it, interestingly enough, came from sort of the the whole Masonic uh, oeuvre, 
with a yeah. um, there's an actually a very interesting book that I that I read um, while I was working on the book, and I, I recommend um, for a lot of people interested in this topic is it's called Not Out of uh, Africa, and uh, it's it talks about how the Freemasons had sort of invented a lot of the mythology that we've read about ancient Egypt and and things like that. Mm-hmm. There was a, it was all part of uh, this whole program that um, yeah. they using in, in, in the 19th century, you know, mm-hmm. and appropriating, yeah. and appropriating now, things from, from various sources. And of course, you know, saying that, that they're, this is their lineage and they're the true inheritors and, and on and on and on. But, you know, a lot of that right. is just real nonsense. You know, it's interesting. Now we have the Edgar Casey organization being the main Egyptology influences. So you've, you've gone with from, Zahi Hawass. Yeah. They put yeah. him through college. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so you go from one to the next. You know, uh, yeah, it's interesting how many interesting secret players there are, sort of lurking behind the scenes so often, as you, of course, well know. (laughs) Well, I want to, I want to uh, jump into some meat and potatoes of your book here. You, you point out in page four of your book that, like rock and roll today, the ancient mystery religions and their events featured things like drugs, noise, wild costumes, pyrotechnics, and such. But it helped the people through all of this in the ancient world to accomplish something. What was it that you said that they accomplished? Well, I think the main purpose of this was sort of like an escape from, you know, the grinding reality of their daily lives. But it was also what you see in a lot of the writings about it. It was the ultimate goal was sort of this overcoming the fear of death, that they would have these sort of transcendental experiences where, you know, they would want to meet whoever the God was that they had focused on. And, um, you know, there's a very interesting distinction here that the the mysteries weren't necessarily polytheistic. They were what is known as henotheistic in in that they focused all their devotion on on a single deity, even if they would Mm -hmm. sort of recognize the other gods and the deity. They they were very exclusively um, devoted to these uh, to these deities, and it's interesting too because the drivers and a lot of the the sort of the original impetus of the mystery religions and throughout the whole culture was women, particularly Greek women, because if you look at Greece, ancient Greece, women had pretty much the same status that they have in Afghanistan today. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe not so much. Um, you know that. The, there were goddesses that were recognized and such, but you know they were basically locked away in their houses and kept as baby machines uh, from for most of their lives. So the Dionysian mysteries sort of gave them an excuse to just go wild. And if you've ever read about how people who are very repressed when they commit crimes, it will be what's known as overkill. Mm-hmm. Uh, because all that frustration sort of boils over. I think the same thing happened, particularly with the Dionysian cults. And as a result of that, the Dionysian cults were, you know, were very controversial, yeah. to say the very least. Right. But now, now it seems like what, what it was able to do is that the combination of all those things going on simultaneously were able to, with, with a pretty much 100% surety, get people into a transcendent state. Like they hit a formula... That was a surefire thing oh, for that's, people. That's, yeah, that's a, that's a very good way to put it. That it was sort of, it seems to me that there was this development that, you know, that they would put together certain ingredients, as it were, and to, to reach sort of that alpha state, you know, that, mm-hmm. that alter, alternate reality sort of altered state of consciousness. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, we see this throughout history, not just in the mysteries. Well, um, the, the meat and potatoes of your book, uh, as far as like the, the core central premise, it, it, it is about how classic rock or different facets of it emulate the various archetypes of the mystery cult religions. Um, can you talk about how um, how it does that in terms of the historical significance? Quote: You have you have a quote also on page four about rock and roll uh, that sort of summarizes this. Do you, do you do you recollect that quote? The Jim Morrison quote? Yeah. Yeah, I mean Jim Morrison. It, I think he was unique among a lot of rock and rollers because I think most of these guys were very much unconscious of this process that was going on. He wasn't. He was He was very well steeped in the classics. Um, you know, a lot of his poetry sort of reflected this. He understood that this, the way this mystery uh, tradition started, it, it has to do with the harvest. It had to do with, you know, sort of the, the cycles of agriculture and stuff. And, you know, he had said that, you know, there'd be separating the wheat from the chaff on the threshing floor and some would get up and start mm-hmm. acting out this this whole drama that 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 they would learn and i think um you know as far as the archetypes themselves i mean it seems to me that these are more almost maybe universal things that mm-hmm. probably apply in other medium and, and other musical genres as well but sort of because rock and roll in that that period of time was so superheated it was like so extreme everything was moving very quickly you know things were developing very quickly um then you know and then the 70s things start to split off into the various subgenres. um you know that sort of forces this this you know what i would almost call like a psychic turmoil right and in that those kind of states you know these these you know these mimetic patterns, these uh, these archetypes and whatnot, start to you know really define themselves, and that's where I sort of looked at, you know, the great archetype. You know, people would always look at the Beatles as being Apollonian, right, and the Rolling Stones as being Dionysian, and this sort of comes from that whole that whole Nietzschean uh, paradigm there. Mm-hmm. But, but what I wanted to take that further because I, you know, we we've all heard that, and you know, these right. cliches are used over and over again. It seemed to me that it goes so much deeper because you can't really call, for instance, I don't know, say, you know, Fleetwood Mac, either really Apollonian or, or Dionysian, sort of mm-hmm. somewhere in the middle. And mm-hmm. the same applies to so many different rock groups. And then when you get into heavy metal bands, you know, they're not, you know, specifically Dionysian, and they're right. certainly not Apollonian. They, they channel a much right. darker energy. Well, I want to get into some more details about some of those in a minute because what, what, what I think that reflects on, you've tried to match up different types of acts within rock and roll to these different archetypes of different mystery religions, whereas the different mystery religions, the ones that survived or seemed to click with people, seem to represent different facets of our subconscious or things that really click with us, you know, or who we want to be and why they why they clicked. Uh, and then, of course, they're being made manifest in rock and roll. Do you happen to have your book nearby within arm's reach? Um, I can open up a PDF. Uh, because I, I wanted to get that quote that you said mentioned from, uh, um, from Jim, Jim Morrison. Morrison. Yeah, sure. Because I think I mean, it was not a mystery to him what was going on. No, certainly not. Uh, when, when he but said that. Jim Morrison, again, I mean, he's very much sort of an outlier in this whole process. I mean, I would even say a lot of these uh, 
even guys like Mick Jagger had gone to college and stuff. It was they were sort of understanding that they're working in a, like a blues idiom, something more 20th mm-hmm. century than. Mm-hmm. Uh, but l- let me read this verbatim. I like to think of the history of rock and roll like the origin of Greek drama. That started on the threshing floors during the crucial seasons and was originally a band of acolytes dancing and singing. Then one day, a possessed person jumped out of the crowd and started imitating a god. Right. Hmm. Right. And that's, you know, and, and he was doing that intentionally, and obviously people responded when, when he was doing that. Of course, sometimes I heard they get a little bored sometimes when he'd spend 20 minutes staring into his lighter or something, you know, but uh, tell, him, tell him to play Light My Fire one more time or something yeah. like that. But, there are yeah. limits to that with people, but obviously, as the venues got bigger and bigger, the more that those the kind of states that you're referring to, the altered states, you know, actually occurred. Um, well, what, I, I should say it was more the opposite. I really, I think, yeah, I think more when when they were playing in the Whiskey a Go Go and yeah. London Fog and these bars on 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 Sunset Boulevard. I think that 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 was more the the pure experience, you know, that mm. it's oh, you always hear this, you know, it's always in the clubs that the, you know, once it it gets out into the the stadiums and the arenas, things get very diluted. Things get very, you know, it's it's hard to really get that energy going, particularly when people aren't really receptive to it. You know, it's mm. the more hardcore people, and you know, particularly in that smaller, more intimate, you know, uh, environment. See, I would have figured they'd had more tools uh, in terms of the pyrotechnics and lighting and it sort of found their voice by that stage and they'd be a little more effective, even just sort of the mob psychology of something that large. But but really when they're at their roots is when you're saying they were they were really most effective and then I guess that's what made them into a big act was that they yeah, did that I, early. Yeah, I think I think a lot of that stuff that you, you mentioned, it's sort of like they're trying to maybe recapture that original mm-hmm. inspiration, you know. Yeah. And Jim Morrison had always said that he you know, when they were big and they were playing all these large venues that he said we you know, I wish we were back at the the whiskey. Yeah. See you when know, I see that place I picture Johnny Rivers playing Secret Agent Man, so yeah. it just doesn't have that connotation with me, you know, when I think about those legendary acts and Eric Burden and guys that came after that. Um I mean I've been to stadium shows and very, very rarely does things, you know, do things really click. I mean, I remember seeing Green Day uh, right after um, Hurricane Katrina, and you sort of figured, you know, because they were into this whole political trip at the time, that they'd sort of tap into that. And they, they were having, like, people do the wave and doing day-out mm-hmm. chants and, like, all this, like, really silly yeah. stuff. And it's just because, you know, it's so vast and big, and it, it you don't have that suspension of disbelief that you can have in a dark room particular basement you know mm-hmm. well i want you i got a homework assignment for you i want you to go get some of those gaither family reunion videos and see if they create that same environment <laughs> on those if they have if you consider them dionysian or, or whatever <laughs> yeah uh well, that, that's an interesting thing because i remember um, you know my mother was always trying to steer me to to christian rock groups uh, you know, of course, being a kid, I just didn't didn't respond to them. You know, and, and then I had some friends who were, you know, pretty uh, hardcore Baptist types who were listening to bands like I guess it was Paperboys. Does that sound sound familiar to you? I don't know. I was too square for all that. I I had a brother who graduated in 1970, so I was still listening to Creedence Clearwater Revivals. I got older and things okay. like that, so I was a little behind the ter- times. And in psychedelia, I actually I really enjoyed that uh, quite a bit. Um, why do you think 
the ancient mysteries were revived through rock and roll suddenly in our generation? Why now, after thousands of years? Why, why dormant for all those years and suddenly in the early 60s, whatever time you might want to call it, does this suddenly pop up? Well, let's, let's not forget the sort of crucial bridge here. And the crucial bridge here is Pentecostalism. Uh, the Azusa Street Revival, mm-hmm. um, because this sort of starts the holiness movement. Yeah. And you've got to look at all the early rock and roll stars as coming from those churches. Uh, Elvis, Jerry Lee Lewis. Uh, little Richard. Little Richard, certainly Little Richard. You know, yeah. he, he returned to that. Aretha Franklin, Sam Cooke. I mean, all of them, all of them came from that. You know, that's where they got their start. That's where they got their start singing. And yeah. if you ever read sort of the um, press accounts of the Azusa Street Revival, they sound almost identical to you know, these uh, people like Livy, these conservative Romans who are sort of uh, bemoaning mm-hmm. the rise of these uh, these mystery cults. It's it's very much the same thing in that, you know, the, you're, Average Roman uh, general or whatever would recognize that Dionysus was an important part of the pantheon, but saw you know the Bacchanalia as being this perversion, this 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 distortion of of the true faith, as it were. And I think you know when you read these accounts that this is the same thing. You know the weird babble of tongues is the the famous uh, headline there. So I think that's really the the midwife because I know it's very controversial, but I really tie. And I, and I say so in the book that I really tie uh, rock and roll as we understand it to gospel music. I mean, it's the same, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, you know, the same beat. A lot of times, it's the same chord progressions. I mean, there are a lot of rock and roll songs that are just gospel songs rewritten, and and vice versa, by the way, or R and B songs. So I think that what happened is that the holiness movement really brings back this whole idea of. You know, being slain in the spirit, uh, more intimate, more personal revelation. Mm-hmm. And this manifests itself uh, in a secular context in the 50s through all these rock and roll stars who were raised in this tradition. You know, what's and, interesting, though, is that is that while all of the, the, the elements are there, the accoutrements, the message change. Because yes, if that's yes. true, you have an emphasis on a Judeo-Christian... God, cosmology, belief system, and then you quickly get into a rebellion, you know, later in the 50s and 60s to try to reject all that. So why would there be a reversal in that aspect but yet retain the rest? Well, I think with the psychedelic movement, I think we had a lot of similar similar cultural conditions. You know, the American empire is... Is, is really what we need to look at. You know, that America wins the war or is on the winning side. I mean, Russia really does the heavy lifting during the war. Um, America is on the winning side, prosperity, uh, and, and let's not forget technology. Uh, leisure time, I think, is really important. That, you know, there are all these um, cultural conditions that sort of create this ferment, but we also have a civil rights movement and there's a lot of questioning of established values uh, that sort of plays into into this rebellious, you know, mm-hmm. feeling. And let's not forget the draft in the Vietnam War. I mean, that really was a, a very powerful uh, force in creating sort of this rebellious attitude. And the interesting thing too, though, is that 
we had sort of psychedelia and this whole explosion and, 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 and whatnot in the counterculture, but there was a very, you know, let's not forget the, the interesting uh, counter-reaction to that in the early 70s with, the, like, the Jesus people, people like yeah. Lonnie Frisbee. Right. And then also, I mean, you had all these hits, you know, Put Your Hand in the Hand. Right. Uh, you know, a lot of songs that were, you know, Jesus, uh, what's that song? Um, Jesus Just All Right With Me, which right. was a bird song, which the Doobie Brothers made a hit. Yeah. So, the, you know, things sort of waxed and waned, and, and sort of that whole gospel feeling really starts to return. And then later on in the uh, 70s, Bob Dylan, of, of yeah. course, becomes a very famous convert, uh, Mark Knopfler. I'm know, wondering, could, could the... Um, the European influence later in the 60s when you have sort of a post-Christian culture from Europe that has, you know, the classical influence, you know, into progressive rock and things, that that actually that could have brought some of that turning away from the American Judeo-Christian experience and influenced our popular music. Well, certainly, I mean, the the Europeans, um, you know, particularly following World War One and, you know, what they call the lost generation, that there really was, you know, what the rise of modernism as, as, as it was understood. And with the rise of modernism becomes secularism. But I think what we also saw, and, and I think should not be undervalued, is also the Eastern religions. Because let's not forget that, you know, psychedelia, you know, has the ragas, you know, people like mm -hmm. Ravi Shankar is, is appearing on all these um, bills with, you know, Jefferson Airplane and, and Strawberry Alarm Clock and, and you know, whichever yeah, band you want to name. So I, I think that things aren't really as cut and dried. I think that there's still sort of an understanding, uh, you know, like there's a spiritual understanding, and but it's, it's very, you know, it's more in the counterculture end. And that's yeah. why I'm saying that there's still sort of this understanding, uh, this Judeo-Christian framework. Uh, you know, of course, it gets stretched uh -huh. to the very limit. But I think yeah. I think that there's still an underpinning there. I would not I would not argue that 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 doesn't really vanish until the rise of the more extreme heavy metal and punk rock that's very British, that's very European. Yeah. Uh, in the in the later 70s, and that's sort of you know with the people, yeah. the the postmodernists and the post-structuralists and all this yeah. kind of stuff. People like Foucault and Derrida and all this kind of nonsense. Yeah. You, you know, your original answer to my question of why now leads to just another question. Uh, because if you're tying it really to the Azusa Street phenomena that occurred at that time, then the question has to be, why was that then? Um, I don't know if you've studied that enough through your studies to have any kind of personal opinions. On, on Do you think there's any metaphysical reason on why things are happening now for us to witness in our generations? Um, I think Azusa Street, a lot of it had to do with racial politics, of the time, you know, Azusa Street couldn't really happened anywhere else but Los Angeles, you know, because Los Angeles is sort of the frontier. You know, it's this place where people were going to sort of rewrite the rules. And I think in a lot of cases, there was a sort of idea that, that the Pentecostal movement would break down uh, racial barriers. And I think that that's a very important part of it. But it's also, you know, just again, disillusionment with the high church disillusionment with liturgy disillusionment you know with yeah. with theology over experience i mean i think in a lot of ways i mean there's a there's a real danger in that in in that yeah. that just like the dionysians 
you know, and maybe some people will be offended by this analogy, but just, you know, the Dionysians really, they favored emotion and experience over everything else. And it just. And ripping animals apart. That's the other thing I like. Yeah, ripping animals apart, exactly. And it it really became like, just, it it devolved into just pure and utter hedonism. You know, I mean, it was not like, you know, the other mysteries were were much more august and much more, uh, not necessarily sedate, but they were more respectable. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was more respectable to be uh, worshipped Demeter at Eleusis than it was to be, you know, part of the Bacchanalia. You know, the Bacchanalia Mm -hmm. just had a very, you know, bad reputation everywhere. They were were very poorly thought of. And then, of course, then you have the anti-Bacchanalia. You have the Mithraic, uh, you know, this very hardcore, militaristic, alpha male, aesthetic, Mm -hmm. self-denying. You know, that's Mm -hmm. very much the the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. But as far as, you know, I think it really speaks to, like, people's need to... You know, if if you're going to be regimented in your daily life, not be regimented in your worship, and I think you know that's mm-hmm. really a, a heavy influence on on Pentecostalism and and, mm-hmm. and its offshoots. You know, I was left with an impression from your book that the '70s, in particular, and maybe trickling into the '80s, was the real golden age of rock and roll, classic rock at that particular time, and that maybe things have moved on. Is is that the case, and do you think that video games and Internet games maybe have replaced them in this current generation for a common shared experience to have some kind of transcendence or any shadow of it? Well, you know what's interesting? I mean, again, I'm going to go back to religion here, because I was sort of part... I don't know how how old you guys are in relation to me, but I... You know, like I'm I two remember, years your senior, and Brother Tom here is, is a good bit younger than you. I mean, I remember, oh, it's interesting, because I remember in the 70s, you know, it used to be, you know, the the the, the, the sanctuary in the balcony would be filled every Sunday. Mm-hmm. And it sort of maintained itself. And, you know, then it's, you know, slowly but surely there was this kind of attrition. And then, you know, the balcony was closed, you know. <laughs> and then huh. it, you'd see people sort of just year by year... And I think, you know, you can't really have uh, any kind of spiritual energy in rock and roll unless people have the training, as it were. You know, if they, if they don't have a uh, background, uh, a religious background or a spiritual background of any kind, they're not going to really gravitate towards that, you know. Uh, it, it's as strange as it sounds because I know a lot of, you know, particularly a lot of conservative Christians see this as like the exact opposite end of the spectrum. But I don't, I'm not exactly sure that it is. Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, what, what rock and roll became, you know, certainly during the classic era, was sort of a substitute religion. It was, it was a very much, a, um, it was a surrogate. And I think what happened is that, you know, into the 80s when more parents were raising their kids secularly, uh, and, and then you sort of had this very strange, uh, gravitation in the church itself towards almost like an entertainment kind of based religion mm-hmm. that I think turned a lot of kids off as they, as they get older. I think that that really has a lot to do with it. The, you know, you can't have rock and roll, uh, without some s- sort of spiritual, um, energy behind it. 
Well, do you and think I that's think, largely gone? I mean, do you think that the I do. time for rock I and do. roll is, and, and what do you think is replacing it? I, I, just, I don't think anything is replacing it per se. I okay. mean, I think that kids are much more jaded. Uh, I mean, I have I have three kids, you know, raising, uh, ranging in age from 24 to, well, going to be 10 this year. So I, I have a sort of interesting experience sort of watching, you know, kids who were raised in the late 80s and the early 90s to kids being raised now. And, you know, I don't, I'm not necessarily, kids are so, so well mediated. They have so much access to diversion and entertainment. I don't think they really need that. Don't forget that there was nothing speaking to kids at all. Uh, except for, you know, a few comic books, maybe some really crummy Saturday morning cartoons and rock and roll. And rock and roll was really it. You know, rock and roll was the lingua mm-hmm. franca. I mean, that was youth culture. Yeah. But now there are so many different things. I mean, I don't think kids really need that. And, and, you know, really the classic age of rock and roll, if you really want to get really down to brass tacks here, you're talking about the British invasion. You're talking about post-war British kids who grew up you know, in a very highly regimented society, and also in a society that had a lot of deprivations. You had rationing still. I mean, you had rationing up until the early 60s. Um, and they sort of saw America as this wonderland, you know, rhythm and blues and Cadillacs and jukeboxes and milkshakes. And it was just like this alien world that they really wanted to be part of. And that energy you know, sort of welled up and it was driven by, you know, the class divisions in England and also the, you know, the regimentation and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And it exploded, you know, in, in the British mm-hmm. invasion. But, you know, you could almost sort of see, you know, if you, you wanted to draw a graph, you know, from like 1964, it's, it's really a, you know, a downward slope. And then there's sort of a kick in the pants in, in the early 80s with MTV and all that kind of stuff. But then it just keeps going down yeah. and, you know, then rap and techno and, and all these sort of, well, you know, let me ask you this: um, With the internet age, and from I think we transition your generation of mine from having no cable or or internet into cable TV and then into internet. That these these mass communication devices that are personalized have a means by which to demystify everything. Yes, it, it takes it eliminates secrets because you have instant access to all knowledge. Therefore, you burn through trends very very quickly. Yes. Uh, you find something that's sort of gee whiz and interesting, and you can get online and find everything there is to know about it in an afternoon, and suddenly it loses its magic. Whereas in, for example, music, I can remember going in, going to the Holiday Inn and collecting albums where they had them in the old milk crates, and you'd thumb sure, through, yeah, and yeah. you never knew what you were going to discover. You'd find an artist you never heard of. You, you know, your knowledge of them consists of what you read on the liner notes. And you would try to find the rest of your life to find another album and, and learn more about them. And, and, uh, so, so it wasn't, and, and even if people were involved in film, you know, underground film or this or that, you just couldn't get a lot of this information, particularly out, you know, in the parts of the country where I lived, uh, readily available, much less find people who were also interested in the same information you were. So when you had a discovery, it was a genuine discovery. And, and I think what, what, what the picture I get from when you talk about these classic rock concerts, you would actually have a discovery. You would go there and do something that was unanticipated. You'd maybe only heard whispers about. And suddenly you experienced it. And I think generations now, they can watch it on YouTube if they want. Uh, yes. Anything is yeah. there, and it takes the mystique out of everything. And oh, I feel absolutely. almost like, yeah. I, I sound like a fuddy-duddy, but it almost seemed like they've been robbed of the magic a little bit. Uh, at even very young ages because of that. 
Oh, I, I totally agree. I, I really do agree. I think that, um, again, you know, we want what we can't have. And when we, d- we don't have access to information, you know, the imagination run wild. I mean, it's, it's so funny because, they, you know, just remember all the rumors, you know, particularly, you know, the great example is Paul is dead. And there are these secret messages in the Beatles albums telling us that Paul is dead and some actor took his place. You know, the, the imagination, the youthful imagination runs wild. You know, and if you really love the band, you really probably only got a chance to see them, at, you know, once or maybe twice a year at, at the most. And what I talk about in the book that was just such an eye-opening experience for me is when I went to see Nirvana uh, in New York. And... After the first few songs, kids are just milling around, sitting down, looking really bored, hanging out in the bathroom, smoking cigarettes, talking, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now I'm sure you see kids, you know, on their phones texting each other and stuff. You know, when you, the media, when everything just becomes so available, you know, it's sort of like a currency. You know, if you print up millions and millions of, yeah. of Federal Reserve notes, they lose their value. And I think Mm -hmm. the same thing happens in our culture. So if you're asking me what is going to replace classic rock and roll, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, Mm -hmm. if we enter into like a real serious era of of deprivation and want, our culture will become much more important again. Well, I, I would I would submit that this probably leads to a very dangerous set of conditions because it's like a heroin addict who has had so much that they have to have such a huge fix. And I think generations today who are saturated with all this information are going to take more desperate steps to get their fix. And I, I think that can have a very destabilizing effect in society uh, because of this oversaturation. I think, we're, we, I think we reached that point maybe during the the 90s with like Marilyn Manson and sort of like the extreme metal and the extreme rap. I think people are kind of, you know, particularly kids are sort of past that now. Yeah. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? I, you know, just remember like Marilyn Manson or Slayer, you know, and I talk about this in the the book, how, you know, there's this sort of uh, give and take. uh, There's this process of outrage and reaction and outrage and Mm -hmm. reaction and the ante constantly needed to be upped. I think that sort of just collapsed. I think mm-hmm. maybe 9/11 had something to do with it, and just so. So, are they a post-shocked society? I think. I think so. I really do. I, shock, I don't think, shock fatigue. Yeah, I think. I don't <laughs> think kids really react to that anymore. At least, you know, from my observations, uh, kids seem to be. I, I, you know, it's interesting because in a lot of ways, I mean, just the kids that I have observations of, you know, they seem to be. Fairly good natured. The thing yeah. that I just worry about is to, again, just like kids should not be jaded at, at age fifteen. You shouldn't right. feel like there's nothing to look forward to and everything's right. been done. And you know, well, that's what I'm getting at. Is there where do they find their source of inspiration? I, you know, I can't answer that. I, yeah. I it's it's very hard to to answer that. I mean, and, and again, getting back to the churches. I mean, one of the things that really. Uh, turned a lot of kids off to the churches was the politicization of it. Yeah. Because I think that um, that you remove um, sort of that childhood sense of wonder because everything just becomes the old conflicts and and, and aggravations and antagonisms. Mm -hmm. So... I don't know. You know, it's it's an interesting time in in history... Um, Maybe it's just purely just uh, 
entertainment for entertainment's yeah. sake. You know, maybe Harry Potter. There was a lot yeah. of worries that kids would turn to to magic and everything like yeah. that after Harry Potter, and you know, and a few kids did, but most kids just you know took it for what it was. And I think yeah. kids today, from again, from my observations, I don't know if you guys have kids of your own, but mm, I don't know if they really they need that sort of that fix anymore because they yeah. they get that through like grand theft auto and and then yeah. you know you sort of you, your adrenaline gears up and then it's spent mm-hmm. and then you move on and do something else yeah um uh, this golden age of rock and roll that you talk about in your book uh this mm-hmm. effect you know where people have, have seen the rock concert that changed their life that you talked about this phenomena that that everyone seems to remember of a certain generation. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think the stimulus? Now you mentioned this connection to Azusa Street is is possibly setting the, the the stage for this. But do you think this whole process itself uh, has any kind of spirit led initiation to this revival, or was it just totally a sociological issue? I think it, I think it's something you should take on a case by case basis. You know, I, I think that it's hard to make blanket statements because you're talking so many different people involved in this and, and so many different people, not only as performers, but also in the audience. Um, you know, certainly in some cases it did. I mean, but again, I mean, you know, that whole, really what rock and roll was up until, you know, the psychedelic movement brought, again, that more European um, inspiration to it. But it was more about, you know, white kids wanting to be, not necessarily be black, but to imitate black culture. And this sort of starts, you know, with the jazz age, really. I mean, this is, you know, and it's interesting that this is the whole, the whole rise of mass media, film and radio and all these sort of things. And, and, and kids sort of were exposed to this. And then, you know, this develops up until, you know, I guess with rap, you know, and, but this sort of hits a, hits a brick wall because I think that in, in so many different ways that white culture and black culture are so divergent now. And there isn't that, that, that integrational aspiration that we had, say, in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. So there are so many different things going on. It's really hard to make a blanket statement. But certainly a lot of people, you know, particularly sociologists, thought that this was the rise of a new religion. Mm-hmm. You know, that this, that this was going to be, this was going to be the new religious expression. So certainly there was, there was something animating this. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, when you hear people of that generation that went to Woodstock or, or grew up in this kind of environment, they speak of it in reverent tones as if it were a religion. Mm-hmm. Well, that's sort of the generational nostalgia. I, I bet Woodstock was wasn't nearly as fun as it yeah right yeah. right so so the key is what did the impact what the legacy it had between the ears uh, of the people and that's what I find interesting because there are certain performers in rock and roll or you know genres like that where they take on this mystical role and then he had to be a John Lennon I mean John Lennon's an easy one where people put him almost in like a sainthood type of position after yeah after death after, uh, yeah. right. But, you know, there's certain others, whether it's Bob Dylan or other ones like this, that, that have that kind of mystical impression left behind uh, from these people. So they may not be totally wrong, it, that at least there are some vestiges of something that people don't always show in their in their traditional spiritual life that they still hang on to, you know, from their experiences there, or something as far as how it changed them and that kind of thing. Uh, well, well, let me just, you know, one of the, the big things that I talk about in, in my book is, you know, seeing the clash in 1980. And 
you know, later on, you know, I read that, that, that Joe Strummel was like the spiritual seeker, you know, his entire life. He, he was involved with some sort of, I guess, some Jesuit sect in Wales at some one point in time, and then he was sort of following around an Indian girl. He's one of these, Whoa. you know, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's sort of an interesting sort of, you know, sort of a spiritual tourism, as it were, you know, right. similar people, people like George Harrison. But, you know, he always spoke you, in terms you, you know, a lot of them listen to Future Quake now to get that box checked off <laughs> yeah, for their right. mystical experience. But, you know, the thing that I sort of saw in him was that he was very much like he was a shaman, you know. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't necessarily, there wasn't any theology or doctrine or devotion to any particular deity behind it. It was more... It was more a feeling. It was more almost a psychic thing, you know. It was it was it was about you know tension and release. So mm-hmm. I think that there's it, it, there's almost like a, a decentralized mysticism in a lot of cases with these people, where they're not they're not preaching a doctrine. They don't necessarily have a devotion to a certain deity, but it, it's it's more you know it's almost like spirit for spirit's sake. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I want I want I want you to give us a little uh, lecture here, a little mini lecture on this next question, because I found it very very instructive. And this is some hard research that you did, as far as some of the main tenets of the mysteries, mm, because yeah. because once people know this, they need to have this under underpinning. That's why you put it in the beginning of your book, so, so that they can put your 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 hypothesis in proper understanding. Once once they understand what are the key passages of the uh, the mysteries, because many people don't understand many of the fundamental tenets, can you explain uh, how the mysteries began and what were some of the basic tenets across the various embodiments? And I and, and I'm I'm getting to the thing like you know uh, experiential type things versus religious dogma, those kind of things that you point out in your book. Can you can you discuss some of those? Yeah, well, basically it breaks down like this: the mysteries were in a, in a way almost a revival of of almost like a a shamanistic form of religion that that predates priestcraft and it has to do with the rhythms of nature so we have you know people like Isis and Demeter who are essentially the same character you know the, the agricultural goddess um this whole drama that we see with the uh the the dying husband or whatever, which sort of represents the seasonal changes or Persephone. A lot of this had to do with these very, very ancient, you know, so people trace this back to the Stone Age, really, or the the late Stone Age, how primitive people would explain in story and and, and in allegory the, the growing seasons. Because don't forget that this is really a point in time when people are going from being essentially hunter-gatherers to be, you know, the, the beginning of the agricultural age, and this mm-hmm. also begins the age of settlement, uh, where you know cities are starting to pop up, and then you know the, the agricultural age also brings the age of surplus. So this sort of gives rise to civilization itself. Um, civilization, you know, sort of we see this evolution from shamanism where you would have the bard, the storyteller, you know, the guy who would sort of bring the whole uh, village to the state with the drums and everything, you know, and then the fire and whatnot. And that sort of degenerates into priestcraft where where things become very ritualized and formalized. So what the mysteries become is that they're very much a reaction against this whole process. 
And what they do is that they focus on a particular deity uh, or particular pair of deities, for instance, Isis and Osiris, uh, Persephone and Demeter, on and on and on, that usually have to do with either the sun, you know, the sun god, Mithras, Horus, or agriculture itself. And these groups would meet in secret, um, often because the priestcraft didn't like the competition and whatnot, um, and would undergo a series of rituals and, and, and practices to sort of bring these, you know, bring themselves into this altered state of consciousness. And of course, there's been a lot of scholarship now in which people have realized that there were various hallucinogens that were ingested during these, these rituals. Um, the whole idea was to take the initiate out completely out of their, their daily experience and um, various methods were used to do so, um, you know, the, things like the blindfolding, uh, you know, terrorization, you know, where the people would be scared out of their wits, you know, by certain performers, um, uh, prayers, sacrifices. One, one of the, the allegories, not necessarily allegor, but the comparisons is that if you really want to see the, 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 what the mysteries were in the modern world, Santeria is, mm. is really the, mm. the purest mm. and most direct um, incarnation of, of, the, of the ancient mysteries. I mean, so many of the you know, very specific practices and, and deities, and of course in, in Santeria, it's, whether it's the low, well, the low is, the, uh, is voodoo, but they're, they're really part of the same uh, lineage the, um, from, from Eastern Africa, and this, of course, comes with a slave trade. But really what, what this is all about, it was changing your consciousness, and, and then, which would in turn change your life. And the, the goal of this, is the object of this, was to create uh, a very intimate relationship to a particular deity, and this would ease your terror of death, that you would no longer mm -hmm. be afraid because you knew that when you died, this uh, deity would be there to... Um, guide you to the afterworld. Hmm. Um, so that being said, I mean, there were a lot of interesting um, overlaps through the different cults. I mean, the major cult centers were Samothrace, what were called the great mm -hmm. gods, um, Eleusis, um, but, you know, the same figures w would be sort of worshipped. I mean, Demeter, Persephone, Hecate, um, Hermes, uh, Dionysus, you know, and whether they were known through different names. Um, and, and then, of course, what I talk about in the book as well is, you know, these ancient heavy metal bands, uh, the, um, the Corabantes, Crates, right. Dactyls, all these different names that they were known under. They would perform at a lot of these different um, uh, cult centers. They were sort of very, they were very ecumenical in that, that um, they, they were huh. associated with all these different mysteries. So they toured. They were a touring band. Yeah, <laughs> they really were. <laughs> it was like... They kept so the funny. they kept the bus. They had billing on there somewhere on the building. Yeah, you know it's, yeah. it's just amazing. Yeah. Uh, but so you know we're familiar with a lot of these figures, um, Addis and Kybel, you know the great mother and, and the son who who was mm -hmm. wounded and descends into hell, and she has to go down and rescue him. And and the same thing is Demeter and Persephone and Isis and, and Osiris. So it's all you know it's all based mm -hmm. in these these fertility rhythms. Um, and of course, you know the Druids also 
had a very similar um, ritual cycle as well. But you know, I go I go back to an earlier comment I made. What I'm struck with is that they finally hit on a formula that again was relatively foolproof for people to have a transformative experience. People from different backgrounds and things like this. And it seemed to be because if it was something where it only was 60% of the time, word would get back and it just wouldn't catch on. But they had something that somehow really got the job done. Well, uh, like going, well, there, there was, again, it's all these different techniques that would take you out of your understanding of reality. Whether you, you know you go underground, yeah. uh, these uh, torches, you know, these these sort of pyrotechnic uh, displays, um, you know, this this uh, this whole idea of, of ter- terrifying you, you know, to, to change your, um, your. You mean your, like our politicians do today? Yes, yeah, exactly. When they warn stuff, because you know, shadows of all those techniques are still available in our mass media. In fact, I would submit that in the continuous experiment, experimentation going on in the modern church. Uh, looking, trying to get that old magic back, so to speak, and uh, fill the seats, that they're trying some of these techniques right now. In Ted uh, Hagen and his uh, fireworks and stuff? Well, yeah, and all sorts of variations like that where, where where they're hitting on some of these kind of themes and the human response that comes with them because it can fill seats. Uh, they may not make careful measurements of what kind of spiritual transformation occurs with people, but hmm. it's something, and yeah. it fills seats. Well, I've done some of this on the blog. I mean, one of the things I wrote about on the blog was, uh, if, if you guys are familiar with the See You at the Pole yeah. movement, yeah. where yeah. you know you um, gather around the flagpole at sunrise, you know, yeah. near the um, the autumnal equinox. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, yeah. Th- this is the uh, almost the same exact ritual that these neo druids do at Stonehenge. Yeah. I mean, t- 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 Ex- except they're not sky clad in those cases. I don't believe. Didn't, yeah. Well, first of all, most of those neo druids you don't want to see sky clad, right. and, and usually the, the television cameras yeah. are there. So they're well, not I meant really... it, yeah, see you at the pole. <laughs> they usually yeah, but, oh yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, it's like, but it's 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 almost the exact same ritual. Yeah. Um, Huh. That's very interesting. I hadn't, hadn't really no. thought about that. I thought it was just a location of convenience for people to meet. I never really had put that kind of mystical. You're getting me think like the Wicker Man or something, you know? Well, that's that's when I first first of all when I first saw it, I I just my mind was just completely blown by it because I just watched the Wicker Man, yeah. and it just reminded me so much of it. Um, you know that whole scene when they're they gathered yeah. around Maypole and they're singing these songs and everything. So it really makes you wonder. Um, you know, another thing is all this. I don't know if you guys have noticed this. I mean, I've found hundreds and hundreds of examples of this. Is all this sun symbolism that we're seeing in the churches? Uh, and a lot of times, you know, a church will have some sort of sun, a rising sun, or whatever. Yeah. You know, and it replaces a, a Bible or a crucifix right. or, or whatever. You know, whatever. Right. Um, yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting in that regard. And I, mean, I don't know if they fully understand that's what they're doing, but they're tapping into well, something it, ancient. Exactly. That it, exactly. But they're seeing that it, they're seeing there's a response to it. They're seeing that something's coming. They may not fully understand it, but it's something that goes back a long, long way to, to get that kind of response. I would submit that probably the movement within the church that's getting closer to, to capitalizing on this is within the emergent church, because the emergent church is tapping into just directly into ancient mysticism, the, the candles, the incense, the icons, uh, and it's really full-blown mysticism. I would say it's almost somewhat indiscernible from the mysteries in some respect. Well, 
there you go. I mean, I t- sort of discussed this with Derek when I was on his show with mm-hmm. Derek Gilbert. Yeah. I'm not, you know, I'm not exactly like to see you with the poll. I mean, I can sort of look at that and just be sort of shocked by it because it's so reminiscent of, of, of druidry. Yeah. But, you know, what is the message there? I mean, is is it going to be leading kids away from their religion? You know, not necessarily. I, I think maybe it's sort of like what, what Paul said about meat-sacrificed idols. You know, maybe the same thing sort of... Uh, applies to these these uh, these rituals and and whatnot. I mean, it's it, it's you know it's like Christmas. I mean, we know that all the you know what we identify with with Christmas comes from Nordic paganism. You know, the, the Christmas tree and, and the candles and the, the presents and all this sort of stuff. I mean, none of that stuff is in the Bible. But you know, is it is it a negative influence? You know, we'll put aside the commercialism and, and all that grotesquerie, but is it necessarily a negative influence? I'm, I, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't see it as, as such. You know, yeah. I, I think that if if it if it does produce, you know, whatever effect they're looking for, I mean, it's you, you know, you and I can sort of look at this very cynically, and and maybe that's the way you should. I mean, but. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, yeah. I, 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 I think if, you know, if you're not doing harm, you know, yeah. I, I don't see the harm. You know? Right. I, I, know what you, I know what you're saying. A lot of times the harm is hard to be able to detect. You know, it, it, may, it may take many years before you actually can see, and it's, you know, maybe not our call, but it's just food for thought. Um, what about Gnosticism? Talking about the mystery religions, and you know, there's a there's an understanding that the rise of Christianity, particularly since Constantine took over, pushed, suppressed, some some in some ways, uh, syncretized or actually took in part of aspects of the mystery religions, but officially banned it, suppressed it. Did Gnosticism attempt to try to offer a mystery religion aspect to, to what we know of as Orthodox Christianity? And if so, why do you think that the, the what we know as the more overt public form of Christianity sort of rejected a lot of its tenets, unlike the other mystery religions which really embraced it? I I don't really see, I mean, I don't really see Gnosticism and the mysteries being contiguous. I, really? I think that they're very different. No, I think they're very very different. Gnosticism reminds you know it's it's something I would lump in more with Neoplatonism, uh-huh. uh, the philosophers, things like that. I mean, Gnosticism. Was not, of course. I mean, you know, this whole term Gnosticism is is not a term that anyone used back then. Um, but it was a search for hidden <clears throat> gnosis or hidden wisdom, wasn't it? And that's what the mysteries provide. They provide an experience, yeah, but, but they the also thing, provided hidden information that couldn't be passed on to people outside the initiates. Well, I'm not necessarily sure that's true because the Gnostics were constantly, you know, putting their tracks out. And their apocalypses and their 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 gospels out. I mean, they were they were pretty. There was a point in time when they, when they were very aggressive uh, about proselytizing. So um, I'm not exactly sure that's true. And 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 again, I mean, the Gnostics. You know, again, it's very important distinction here that that, that the mystery religions are all about the earth. You know, and the cosmos yeah. that, that 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 this they worship, you know, they worship yeah. the Earth Mother. Uh, you know, the right. the Gnostics see the Earth Mother as is this grotesque uh, imposter. You know, that that, that well, the that's Earth true. Is, they didn't have the sensual aspect of being connected to, 
you know, the earth and reality because it was all evil, but they certainly believed in the spirit world and the spirit behind what was seen with the eyes. Well, that was universal, though. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, there were, of course, atheists and there were skeptics and, yeah. and all these sort of groups. Rationalists, yeah. Yeah, and then Stoics and, and, right. and on and on and on. I mean, it was very, you know, fermented time as far as religion and philosophy, you know, say the first century, second century. But the Gnostics, I mean, I'm trying to think what, you know, I, I said that the the best, you know, comparison in modern times to the ancient mysteries is Santeria. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, with the Gnostics, they seem, to, I've always seen them as, as kind of like hippies, um, you know, who just, they, they, their main goal is, is, is sort of to go off away from everyone else and, and form their own communities because the, you know, the world is, is, is corrupt and fallen you know, it's very, very much different from from the mysteries, um, and 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 the, the Gnostics also were more. The mysteries are about experience. And the Gnostics, of course, are about knowledge. I mean, knowledge. those are really right. yeah. It's really two different things. I mean, it's much more intellectual. Uh, it's it's just a it's just a much different thing. And the yeah. only thing that they really have in common is that they were competing for adherence at the same time, uh, and, and in, this, in a lot of places, you know, at this, in the same place. I, I really don't see them as, as, as having a lot in common. I never uh, pictured them having a battle, though, in the ancient world, that actually they would have competed in that atmosphere in the ancient world between the, the Gnostic movement and the mysteries, per se. Well, I don't think they would they would outright compete with each other, because... The mysteries, when the mysteries first, you know, for instance, came to Rome, I mean, they really were clamped down on, you know, we have the whole yeah. episode in 186 where, you know, thousands of people are killed. And then, you know, when the ISIS uh, churches start to seep into Rome, I mean, the priests are killed, you know, they're torn down. It isn't really, ironically, uh, Caligula, of all people, that it starts to take hold. Um, I think, you know, up the, when the Gnostics are really at the, the, their height, it's probably sometime in the second century. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the yeah. mysteries at that point in time are pretty well established. You know, it's kind of like rock yeah. and roll is, is, is pretty <laughs> well established in, in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, maybe yeah. like maybe the, the, the Gnostics are sort of like the prog rockers. <laughs> yeah, know? right. Yeah. Well, like, a little more like, intellectual, inward yeah, yeah, thinking, like, yeah. You know? Right. Uh, I, I think, you know, and, and the mysteries of the Rolling Stones. Maybe that's the, the analogy I've just been racking my brains for. Yeah, yeah. I, I think they're really not very similar uh, okay. in very many important ways. Well, I'm going to skip to some questions I really want to ask you about that got my wheels turning about things we talk about on our show, because I know we're getting late uh, in this. Um, that, that really got me thinking. That it's Corabantes, correct? That's how they're pronounced? The, yes, the Corbanis. <clears throat> to me, they're very interesting. Fast with the mysteries. I mean, they dressed in military gear. They made dances celebrating the warlike lifestyle during the rituals to create this frenzy atmosphere. You know, banging on their sword or their shields and things. Yeah. And, and when I was reading there, it says that, that they were the ministers of Hecate using this wizardry and charms. And it says that the clanging of their shields hid the growing boyhood of Dionysus. Or you know, or Zeus. Or Zeus. Yeah. I mean, that's 
there's this interesting process going on where we have the actual priesthoods and then we have the mythologizing about them. Well, that, that, what and was interesting about this phrase, if I could just sort of uh, throw this out here for you to comment on, is that this idea of the clang and the shields hid, or I, I presume they're a distraction, to his boyhood growth. Do you think that the American religious culture today that we see, evangelical culture, that really glorifies war-making right now, and I, and I think in some ways they, they, they emulate the Corbantes in many cases from what we document on our show, mm. um, is actually uh, creating a distraction in of itself that is hiding the growing popularity of the Dionysian mystery religion's adoption within society and maybe even making headway within Christianity. And that it's creating a diversion and it's avoiding people from actually seeing Dionysus growing up in their very midst amongst their own. Well, I've always sort of seen what's going on in Pentecostalism. And, I mean, I, don't, I know a lot of people might disagree, but a lot of you know, people who observe this you know, say that in, in the next century, when we think of the word Christianity, Pentecostalism will be you know, what, what people picture, that that is going to be the, the dominant uh, strain you know, particularly in the non-Catholic world, um, but there is, you know, very much sort of this Dionysian impulse within within the Pentecostal world, and you know, we, we're constantly hearing of, I guess, what an old-time Baptist would call backsliding mm-hmm. among these people. That uh, and and people like, I guess, Tom Horn talked about, you know, wife swapping and things like that. I, I think, yeah, I, I think that that's a very apt analogy. Uh, I, I, I didn't necessarily see them as the Corbantes, but you know the Corbantes were also associated with the Mithraic religions, and I see very much what's happening, you know, like what you were talking about that that fellow uh, General Boykin. Mm-hmm. I mean, he would fit right in in a Mithraic right. cult, you know. I, and I would Air recommend Force. if you want to see Corbantes, just go to a typical evangelical service on the Fourth of July. Uh, we have a major church here that has people repelling from the ceiling. In the church sanctuary, you know, in combat fatigues with things firing off. And, of course, you're hearing stars and stripes forever and the flags waving and all this kind of stuff. And I don't see that really being a far cry. From no, what no, you're talking no, not at about. all. No, I, I think there's a tremendous repaganization of, of American Christianity in particular. Oh, absolutely. I, I think, you know, again, you know, when we talk about these things like, you know, see you at the pole. Oh, I, uh, you know, and this is something that, that, you know, to be perfectly frank, sort of drove me from the church because I sort of noticed this happening 15 years ago. And I'll tell you, you know, uh, you know, very seriously speaking here, I, I was uh, taking discipleship classes and, and, and going back to church, uh, say, like 15 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. And then I went online and then I, I was just, I, it started this whole incredible process that I was, it was just so shocking to me because I would go on America Online and go into the, the Christian forums, and I just saw like such blatant hatred and nationalism and violence and and just uh, I mean just all these sort of things that you're talking about. Uh, and 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 if people were not actually condoning it, there were you know there was sort of the maybe the silent majority that were just were, were tolerant of it. It was, it was yeah. shocking to me, and I think that that's you know to me that's. Um, that's a very unhealthy uh, development because. Let me ask you this: if if there had been other Christians that approached things sort of like what we do here on Future Quake, 
would it have been more likely that you would have stayed involved in a Christian fellowship? At that point, yeah, I think so. Um, but again, I mean, you guys are, are very much uh, what I would call a voice in the wilderness. Yeah, yeah, we call <laughs> you know, ourselves that a lot of times. Yeah, you and 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 Derek and 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 Sharon yeah. and, and and people like that. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I but I yeah, and, and it's interesting because I was I was um, interviewed for for a pagan website about the book, and and they said, oh, you know. Were you slamming Christianity and said no? You know, I have I have great respect for for real Christianity. What I don't have respect for is is what's being sold as Christianity, which is is really um, uh, fry, uh, refried paganism mm-hmm. in, in so many different ways. Uh, nationalistic paganism, um, you know, with the, with the flag becomes a, a new uh, icon. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 very it's very disturbing to me. But again, I mean, that's driven a lot of people, you know, particularly younger people, away. And we we discussed this before. And and I think yeah. that it's the deal with the devil. You know, the, uh, I think that the evangelical churches made a, a pact with the devil, whether mm. you want to take that figuratively yeah, right. or literally. It could be either. You know, to fill the to fill the stadiums and to fill the um, the, the pews and whatnot, and then we saw just this this really grotesque what I, what I think of um, as as uh, you know um, a grotesque process uh, a, pro- a profanation really you know and and when you know, see that the fireworks and and Britney Spears music with a sort of a light devotional gloss. Mm-hmm. Painted over the lyrics. I mean, you, you know, you can't you can't separate uh, those that that kind of music. And and this uh, I think is important to when we talk about what I'm writing about in the book. You can't you can't take death metal, you know, which comes yeah. from a, a particular social milieu and and Christianize it. You know, it, it just mm-hmm. can't be done. It, it comes the music itself. I will take that opinion from you with with a, a special amount of seriousness and integrity because of what your career has been in analyzing this sociologically that that what you're saying is someone on the outside looking in is a very serious commentary that you're giving us uh you, you don't have a dog in this fight you know and where this falls but people in the church need to be listening to people like you uh because you've done a lot of thought about this and they would they would really benefit from you thinking about when they try to pretend to be something that they're not and try to embrace surefire techniques and things but not intended to accomplish their objectives or what they're supposed to be in society, um, that that they're doing worse than doing nothing in that regard. Well, again, you know, it's it's, it's almost like a fire sale mentality. You know, you, when you sell, you sort of sell off and. Listen, I have a bias here because I do have a bias here because I grew up in a very old time conservative Methodist church, you know, and we still practice the liturgy and the doxology and the Apostles' Creed and all these sort of things. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I see that there is a, a strength in ritual, that there is a, is a value in ritual, and there's a, you know, there's a meaning to this, you know, where you sort of, when you're. Now, that's going, not the word in the church, Christopher. The, the word in the church would be that somebody like you had left because the music was not rocking enough. And so that's what they're trying to do is to change that to get you back 
that if they will try to create, you know, get some of their local people there to start playing. Up. We'll get them back. Start playing <laughs> some, uh, you know, Rolling Stones and direct it upward, which means they, you know, direct it to Jesus, that that will get Christopher Knowles back there. Uh, that's what their thinking is. Well, I, 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 it makes me, um, it makes me sad because I just see that, um, again, there was this whole process, and I think a lot of it really has to do with the politicization. And, and, and this is not just on the right that, you know, we saw the whole, uh, the, you know, the, the mm-hmm. church, yeah. you know, my old denomination sort of buying into the whole globalist, uh, yeah. you know, United Nations kind of mentality, you know, and, and, and look what it did to them. I think the same thing is going to happen to the evangelical churches. I, th- I think the same process. You know, they were sort of very triumphalist during the 80s when the, the main, mainline churches were sort of losing, uh, you know, their adherence and whatnot. But I think the same process is going to repeat because, yeah. you know, they sold out, yeah. basically. You know, it's, 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 you know, let's take it back to rock and roll. You know, you sell out, you get a hit, couple hits on the radio, mm-hmm. but, you know, what really makes or breaks a band is a few years down the line. And if people feel cheated, people feel ripped off, people feel like you betrayed them, you know, those hits are going to become an albatross around your neck. And, right. you know, this, this happened, to, right. you, know, partic- you know, when I was growing up, band after band that I loved when I was 12, by the time I was 14, they were playing the same problem that, you know, was on the radio. It just... Right. In fact, in the church, I'd say we've, been, we've gone even beyond that point to uh, jumping the shark, <laughs> where we've gone to absurd levels, you know, at this uh, point. You know, uh, listen, I'm not going to argue with you, and uh, I, I'm, I'm really not. And, well, and like you said, I don't have a dog in this fight, right. but I, I think that, I don't know, you, you, have, to, yeah. you have to take a stand somewhere. And, and, and this is something that I've always said, you know, with rock and roll bands. And, and I, you know, I talk about the clash, I sort of chastise them for yeah. uh, cashing in their chips. And, and that sounds like a, a pretty ridiculous analogy for, yeah. for the church itself. But, you know, microcosm, macrocosm, you know. Well, when the, when the suits that are counting the coins tell you to do it, that's when people do it. Whether you're a rock band or you're a staff at a church or whatever, it takes exceptional people. Whether again you're a rock band with principle or a church leader with principle or whatever, to turn away from the bean counters, that say this is what you need to do to sort of keep the whole keep the whole scene going, and to say that's not me. Yeah, money changes everything. Yeah. Yes, honestly, anyway, do you want to move on? Yeah, I want to move on, but I just want to just close to, to clarify what I was saying on this question about about uh, hiding the growing boyhood of Dionysus. Is that if there's any truth to that ancient wisdom, I take from that. That in all the furor and all the loud shield banging and all the great nationalism and other kind of things, getting the macho muscles and juices flowing in any mm. kind of environment like that, what mm-hmm. it does is serves as a distraction while at the same time you see a reactionary response in the Dionysius growth that comes up through an institution while that's going on. And I suspect that from from what we've seen and the people we've interviewed on our show, that that actually is happening within parts of the church, that that kind of movement is coming in in reaction to what you were talking about, the politicization of the church, all this kind of emphasis on the patriotism, war-making, nationalism kind of thing, is that there's a backlash going in this other direction like this. And I think it would behoove the church to start looking for that. 
uh, and what's going on. Uh, one, one other thing and a related question, uh, related to that, what was, was, you said that in your book that the founding principles of the Roman religions and how it evolved and, and, and their kick at the can were sovereignty, military force, and fertility. Mm-hmm. Yes. And this is the other area that reminded me back to where we are today. Absolutely. Uh, in well, the that's why I put it in there. Yeah. When the evangelical community, where we come from, because in the American religious right today, uh, I mean, in, in a way, I could say that we they, they sort of, in effect, worship Mars, the god of war. When you you know the stuff that I get Mars from, Hill, that guy Mark Driscoll. Well, well, you know, <laughs> there's a, like there's that, a different yeah. Mars Hill. You know, Paul had something different to say there, which actually I'd like to get back toward that. Where we actually have an honest dialogue with people of different belief systems and actually treat them with dignity and tell them what we what we really believe and believe in the power of our message in that point. But but you know this worship, what I consider a worship of Mars, is what I judge yes. in my inbox, in my email from WorldNet Daily and from all these other kind of places, was they're constantly beating this drum of we've got to go kill somebody. We've got somebody that we've got to get, and we've, we we forget that that was not what early Christianity was about. That's what the pagan religions were about. Uh, and, and I would submit that even this whole idea with fertility is a, is a type or a class of virility that we're celebrating, and that yes. in America, our fertility that we celebrate, they would celebrate agricultural fertility. We, we look at our economic fertility here. And that's what we celebrate is what makes us right as Americans is the great economic might that we've created as well as our military. Uh, There's no that, difference really, though. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, agricultural, in the ancient world, agricultural fertility translated directly into to, to wealth and, and economic might. And so this would be sort of the full aspect of what virility is. And in the, in the, in the Bible, there was, a, there was one of the churches in Revelation that, that was talked to in Laodicea that fully encapsulated this. They said that they were rich and had need of nothing. And so they had this view that they had sort of a completeness that I guess the Romans aspired to, is to be totally full and virile in every aspect of their society. And it seems to me that, that, that we see shadows of that in the American religious right today. Do you, do you agree with me, or am I just drinking oh, too I much totally coffee? Oh, I totally agree with you. I, I absolutely. I mean, that's, that's really what I was, was sort of alluding to before. You know, this, the, you know it's, it's, it sort of transcends the church militant to, you know, the pagan church militant. I mean, it, it, I, mean I will say, and I, again, I've, I've, I've documented this extensively on the blog, is that there are so many people who believe that they're Christians, but are really in practice and in reality indistinguishable from from Ro- certainly Roman pagans. Absolutely, there's no question about it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a gentleman back to the rock and roll aspect of things that that captured my imagination, and I'm ashamed that I didn't know more about him as much as I like music. And that's Harry Smith. Yes. Uh, who is the author of the Anthology of American Folk Music. Can you briefly comment on what you think is the impact he's had on the American music scene and also some of his religious backgrounds and how that may have influenced things? Well, this sort of ties back to what I was saying before, that it almost seems to me, I have this sort of fantasy vision that you know, Harry Smith was this guy who went, went and made all these field recordings uh, throughout the, uh, particularly the American South, of uh, you know the, the the great blues men and and uh, country singers and folk singers bluegrass, 
It's this really rich tapestry of, of American music um, that in many ways had been forgotten, you know, because uh, jazz really became the lingua franca for American music starting in the 1920s uh, and, and certainly, you know, the big band era and, and then the cocktail jazz and on and on, Franks and after people like that. You know, Harry Smith sort of went back and said, you know, wait a minute, you know, that's great music, but there's this whole other you know, spectrum of, of great sounds and, 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 you know, folk traditions that are specifically American, you know, that are indigenous to, to American culture. And he gathered them all up and put out, put out this, uh, this, you know, this mammoth, uh, compilation. And it really, I mean, it really kick-started the, the folk explosion of the 1950s. Uh, you know, and then that's sort of when rock and roll sort of stumbled uh, in the late 50s that, that became the sound of the college campuses in particular. Um, but it really had a huge influence on the British invasion, too, because the British invasion were really about returning, you know, that the rock and roll had become very slick. You know, we had sort of the vocal groups, uh, the Four Seasons, and then you had Motown and, and whatnot, and Phil Spector, that everything was very slick and produced. And they were sort of returning to this earthy sound. And, and that's, like, the spirit of Harry Smith is in there. Now, Harry Smith... <laughs> Is a very interesting character because he's also involved in um, the, uh, I guess, the OTO, uh, mm-hmm. sort of an really? acolyte of, yes, an acolyte of um, of, of of Alistair Crowley, uh, Kenneth Anger, uh, sort of his counterpart in the visual aspect of this, said that he was uh, the greatest magician that the America had ever produced, and that's Harry Smith. That's how he's saying that about, yeah. Yeah, his parents were theosophists. He said he claimed to be um, initiated into some, uh, I guess, some Native American shamanistic cult and whatnot. But this is sort of what I saw saw the the mysteries as. I, I had this image in my mind that the mysteries really started with sort of these cosmopolitans going to the you know the these villages in the boondocks and, and seeing these rituals that they, they had, these very vigorous rituals. And a lot of this ties back to the mountains uh, in Turkey. Um, hmm. and, and sort of brought this back and said, you know, wow, look at how wild and, and invigorating this is. And that's sort of the same exact thing that Harry Smith did. And it's very interesting that he was sort of involved in this, this the uh, last vestiges of the occult underground. By this time, uh, the OTO and, and, and Crowley himself was, was pretty much forgotten. Uh, interestingly enough, really one of the last vestiges of the OTO was uh, Jack Parsons Lodge uh, in Pasadena right. with uh, L. Ron Hubbard. And then when that sort of dissolved, there was very little left. I mean, pe- probably most people had no idea, and I don't think he was very open about it, but even if he, they, you know, people had largely forgotten Aleister Crowley by this time. So it's, yeah, it's just sort of these interesting characters that showed up. And, and, and let me just say this. I mean, I, I don't see Crow, uh, Harry Smith as being a, a very a sinister character. I see him mm-hmm, sort yes. of as an eccentric character. I think that uh, this is sort of a time when people were sort of drawn to these, um, you know, countercultural extremes, but not necessarily out of any sort of spiritual malignancy. I think it was just... Well, do you think there's any do you think there's any connection at all or any significance that he was so important in both those fields in in the occult field and also his influence through his musical anthology or is it just really a coincidence? 
Not necessarily, but let me, again, I mean, he's important in a field that doesn't really exist at this point in time. <laughs> you know, that there are probably a handful of people that are involved in, in the OTO. I mean, literally a handful of people. Yeah. And it's not really until the 60s. And, and strangely enough, it's, it's Kenneth Anger himself, who I wrote about uh, when I wrote about the film Lucifer Rising that he produced, that becomes sort of the Johnny Appleseed, as it were, of the OTO, that he, in many ways, single-handedly brings this stuff back to the fore because he gets involved with people like Jimmy Page and, and, and the Rolling Stones and stuff. And, of course, it's, you know, when you talk about it, and this is what I really wrote that article about, it's just sort of, how this all really backfired that you yeah. know fooling with these 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 strains of black magic didn't produce very uh efficacious results for any of these people well you There's know certainly I, not Kenneth anger i wouldn't say yeah except a lot of anger from him uh I, I i would say that necessarily these things haven't disappeared but they have percolated into different cultural artistic medium and i would submit uh more the fellow did watchman and v for vendetta what's his name uh alan moore alan moore I, I I really see the mantle resting on him. I mean, he's a very active practicing magician, certainly has tremendous influence, but he's in a different cultural medium, a different artistic medium. And so he he actually has taken some of those influences and the philosophy that goes with it into his medium, and it's probably having the kind of influence I would submit that, that rock and roll did in the 70s. Oh, certainly not on the scale, not on the same scale at all. I mean, uh, Alan Moore is... None of his films, you know, the film added, first of all, he's <laughs> put curses on all of them, uh, strangely enough. Uh, he's not a big fan of his films being adapted. Um, some of them were written before he, you know, this, yeah. his whole magician persona, he freely admits was part of his, uh, his midlife crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, Watchmen was written before that. Um, v for Vendetta was written before that. Um, from hell was sort of but but yet he still carries on the references to Alistair Crowley and these other characters in the in the in the actual versions he writes now they're sanitized a lot in the movie versions but they all carry that same kind of information in in Promethea um see I, I see I see with and, and it's very interesting how he how he explains all this and it sort of ties into what I talk you know what I write a lot about yeah is that this, this, this sort of embrace of esotericism is, is really an embrace of the irrational and an embrace of, of, of a mystery itself. That what he said, you know, he had this midlife crisis and it sort of was in the middle of a sort of a fallow period for him creatively. Yeah. And he, he didn't know where ideas came from and he was not doing very memorable work at the time. And it was sort of like embracing irrationality. And, you know, People who have gone through the same process and, and become Christians. Um, a great mm -hmm. example of this is Rick Griffin, who was an underground cartoonist who was uh, very famous in the San Francisco rock scene. Yeah. And he underwent the same sort of midlife crisis, as it were. And he became, you know, a very, I mean, certainly a very mystical Christian, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, very, very much involved. And, it, and it's embracing the irrational. And maybe that's maybe the problem when we talk about kids being over-mediated, jaded, yeah. hard to impress. And, and this is one thing that I really worry about with the rise of this very militant skepticism and this very militant atheism. Because it comes very, you know, it is, a, they will deny it, 
until the cows come home. But it is a very militant fundamentalist belief. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a it's a very militant fundamentalist belief system, uh, and they proselytize and they create their own texts and they have their convocations and their pilgrimages and all of that. You know, except it's that they live in denial about it. Unlike the pagan community or Christian community or whatever have you, you know, they admit those elements to what they do. But the atheistic community, I would say they largely deny that that exists, what you just said. Well, that's sort of, you know, what fascinated me and why I became, you know, this sort of cultural observer that I am. Because having, you know, this very immersive religious upbringing, I was able to see these patterns repeating themselves outside of the religious sphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in the cultural sphere. And, you know, the, my first sort of really big breakthrough in this was when I wrote Our Gods of Hispanics because I saw um, cosplay and comic conventions, you know, being these new pilgrimages and, and these new mystery plays and, right. and all this kind of thing. So, uh, you know, mankind is an inherently religious animal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's something that we can't avoid. Um, and <laughs> really, I mean... When I think of uh, people talk about, oh, secularism created uh, Hitler and, and Marx and, and Stalin and all mm-hmm. these people. Mm-hmm. No, Nazism and communism were pure religions through mm-hmm. and through. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were they were strictly uh, fundamentalist uh, religious expressions. They just were not mm-hmm. theistic. Something well, does not have to be theistic in order to be a religion. I mean, that's something that people right. really need to understand. I mean, religion means to bind together. And what I how I describe religion is an organizing principle. It can be either theistic or it can be non-theistic. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, I know you've been with us for a good bit here, and I have a whole lot more questions that... Give them coming. Uh, Give them coming. Well, out of respect for you, I hate to keep dragging you through through the woods here because there's oh, so I'm much... Oh, just warming in- up. <laughs> <laughs> Keep them coming. Well, I, I want to ask you about the future. I, 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 for, from all that's been that's covered in your book, I, I, I'd like to know what you think are the things that we need to see, the trends that are going to lead into the next generation, in the next few years. What are, what are the big things that you think, from what you've covered, the lessons learned from your book that will dictate what what we see culturally in the future. Well, I wrote this book in a very vain hope that young musicians would sort of discover it and sort of apply the lessons in it to to their own music. I mean, maybe it will take a while. Sometimes these things take 20 years to happen. Um, But what I really want people to do is take, their culture more seriously and understand that they have a responsibility to a larger purpose that that to me you know without culture you know a, a society is not truly impoverished until it loses its culture hmm. and we are in danger of that that we are in danger of culture being strictly almost completely determined by finances you know, one of the things that drives me crazy is that, you know, when people talk about the big movie that opened up, they always talk about the grosses, you know. It's yeah. like, well, it earned this much money. It's like. I thought the Internet was supposed to rele- release us of that. Christian. Uh, no, it's only reinforced that. Um, you know, we've become extremely materialistic. We've become extremely reductionist uh, on the whole as a culture. Even in our religious expressions, you know, certainly in the fundamentalism that we've discussed, uh, you know. 
things just get reduced. They get boiled down, and you th- you throw so many babies out with the bathwater. In in, in in many cases, uh, I, you know, I'm I'm very nervous in a lot of ways. I, I think that um, people have really lost sight of just joy in art and in culture and in religion. You know, that the joy yeah. is such is such an important uh, binding element in any in any human endeavor and i think that we've lost sight of that because there are so many materialistic and 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 non-artistic or non-spiritual motivations you know that are so prevalent today well we've got art out there like girls gone wild and and, you One, know, two, three, four, Jersey, five, Shore. Six. Jersey Shore, <laughs> Jersey Shore, <laughs> Desperate Housewives. I tell you what, if people want to have a mystical experience that's transcendent, that's the closest to the mysteries now, I would suggest they watch Nick Jr. <laughs> on, on cable because you'll you'll have most of your Producer shows. Devo. Yeah. Mo- most of your most mystical experiences are going to be on something like Yo Gabba Gabba. Uh, if you see, in fact, I think Mark Mothersbaugh is one of the main producers of that show. Debo. Uh, and uh, a host of his other new yeah. wave people. You, if you if you can see their handprint clearly on this, and it's very curious to see what the next generation. You know, in fact, we've got kids now who you'll talk to them now. They're likely to answer you in Chinese words or Spanish as much as anything else because of Dora. They now have like a, a, a one that is only in Chinese. Oh, really? I assume, yeah, they just learned words in Chinese uh, on, on Nick Jr. And so these kids actually will give you an amalgam answer of English and Spanish and Chinese. And uh, it's going to make for a very interesting culture. The ones that are going to take care of us when the three of us are in a nursing home. <laughs> what they're going to do to keep You're like the, Blade Runner, right? <laughs> well, to keep the yeah. show going. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know I've, I've introduced uh, uh, Tom here to the joys of Ultraman. Ultraman. And the and the influence. Ultraman. I don't know if you were the Ultraman generation there, Christopher, but uh, I vaguely remember Ultraman. Yeah, uh, and I'm I'm just wondering if these kids are going to look back at Yo Gabba Gabba and things like this, and these will be the defining things, like the rock concert that changed their life. I don't know what else will fill that void, but you know, you talk about the lack of joy in these kind of things. How do you think it's going to make itself manifest in our culture? Uh, if 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 the actual culture itself, uh, the arts and things like this don't fill that void, how will it make manifest in the way our communities live and, and their very nature? Well, in no good ways, I think. Um, but the problem with forecasting, and this is something that I, I noticed a few years ago, <laughs> but I noticed that people sort of tend to project what's happening now into their future forecasts, but they there's always a you know, for every uh, action, there's a there's an equal and opposite reaction. Things change. Um, nobody could have anticipated, say, grunge happening in the in the early '90s because everybody thought that you know electronic music and and rap and all these sort of things were just being completely predominant. But there was a reaction against that, so we could see a reaction to this very denatured culture that we're living in. Um, I don't know, know exactly what form it's going to take. And again, this is why I, I, I worry so much about, uh, you know, the skeptics and the atheists and everything like that. Mm-hmm. You know, not necessarily, you know, I think skepticism is a very important thing. You know, I, I, I'm not, you know, but I don't see what they do as being 
what I would call orthodox skepticism. It's just reactionary. It's just it's just uh, contrarianism in, in in so many ways. But I think what's going to have to happen is that the way countercultures always happen, and what I you know what I experience in punk rock, it's going to take enough misfits and outcasts getting together and and saying no, and saying. I refuse. You know, I want some experience here. I want to experience joy. I want some spiritual content to to what I have to say. It's that's how it's going to work. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 then it will snowball. It will have to resonate. But so there are so many things going on that need to play out. I mean, one mm-hmm. of the things that I really worry about that I think is just such a destructive and damaging. Uh, influence on our culture is things like Jersey Shore, these quote-unquote reality shows, which are, are pure fiction. They're, they're pure mm-hmm. invention. They're you know we are mm-hmm. they're they're all scripted. Mm-hmm. Nobody acts naturally when they're on camera. First of all, when you have bright light shining in your face, you're not going to act naturally. Uh, it's it's training people to to feel like they are themselves on camera. It's creating a, a sense of narcissism and self-obsession mm. and solipsism in so many people, particularly younger people. And I think that the the technology with the phones and all this kind of stuff is, just, is in many ways reinforcing that. These things need to cycle out. They will. They will cycle out. They're not permanent. Nothing has, you know, nothing is permanent except for change, right? Mm-hmm. Things will change. Things will come around. It's up to every individual to act according to the dictates of your conscience and of your spirit on an individual basis. And if you feel the, the need to, to, to argue your case to as many people as possible. And that's how things will change. You know, yeah. whether it's through music, whether it's through yeah. poetry, whether it's through religion. Whatever it is. I mean, if you're not happy with what's going on in the church, you've got to fight against it. You've got to militate against it. You've got to argue against it. Same thing goes with with any form of human endeavor. You know, if, if you feel that need, if you feel very strongly that this offends your sensibility, that offends your spirit, you know, you have you are given the responsibility, you know, that that in many ways is a gift you know, that that is a gift that saying, you know, stand up against this, you know, stand up and yell against this, you well, know, it, like Martin Luther did, right? Well, I hope Future Quake um, meets your misfit criteria for that. If we oh, can check that yeah. box off, at least. <laughs> uh, we're, we're, uh, we're sort of the island of unwanted toys in that regard, I think, you know, like Rudolph. Um, in, in closing, I just want to ask you, what do you think, if if this world stays around for any length of time, what will the archaeologists, sociologists, whoever's looking at this, what will they think about the long-term impact of rock and roll on world culture as it, the it depends years, how, generations go by? Yeah, it depends on how wide a view they take of it. You know, if they do look at the ancient mysteries, they'll just say, well, you know, this sort of pops up every thousand years or so and and manifests itself and then sort of recedes back you know that there's always this need to escape the grinding boredom of of daily life you know that's how i sort of saw the ancient mysteries you know you can ascribe you know 
any theological or spiritual connotation to it. But to me, what it really boils down to is that these were people who just wanted to get away from themselves for a little while. They just wanted to escape. You know, particularly with these women, these, these, these Bakkans, these Dionysians, you know, because their lives were so miserable. I mean, just imagine that you're locked away in, in your house and your, your husband's off with some 14 year old boy in a bathhouse somewhere. I mean, you know, you're miserable. Your life is, 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 is a living hell. You're sort of so, like the girls on the honeymooners, you know, stuck back in the tenement house back there. Exactly. You know, Trixie no, no, never got out. Yeah. And this is what, you know, when I talked about superheroes, and I've talked about superheroes all blue in the face, you know, what I say is that if things continue to, to in the same vein that they're going, that, that the individual is more and more disempowered, that there are so many forces stacked up against us that are, are crushing, you know, our freedom and our individuality yeah. and our futures and our livelihoods, that you know the whole concept of the superhero is going to resonate with people. That people are going to be drawn to that. It might wax and wane a little, but you know, this started mm-hmm. in the depression. You know, that the superhero really was the child of the depression. Rock and roll is different. Rock and roll was the child of great prosperity. It was the child of American empire. I think that's may have a lot to do with why rock and roll is not quite as resonant as it once was mm-hmm. because people don't feel maybe as celebratory and as yeah. triumphalist as they once did. But, but, so, but when, you, when you talk about these things as far as what their contributions, whether it's the Mr. Religions or, or rock and roll, it, it, in terms of a diversion, even finding a superhero, if the fact, if all it is is that it's a fantasy that we walk out, it becomes nothing but a placebo uh, you know, to get us through a day like Mother's Little Helper. Uh, I mean, <laughs> institutions like Christianity at least hope to claim to accomplish more than that, something that has a lasting significance beyond the grave, rather than something that just makes us feel better to get through the day, which I think that's part of why they have terrible performance in many debates with guys like Dawkins and, and Christopher Hitchens and others, the atheist, is that they argue the, the use of Christianity is how it makes people feel better and makes society feel better which is not what I understood Christianity was intended. It's a byproduct, but it's not what it was intended to offer. It was intended to offer something of eternal consequence. Is is that a barometer we should really look at? Is is there something that's more transcendent in its contribution rather than just helping us to get through the day? Rock and roll? Um, Or anything like that? Well, I think, you know, what I think rock and roll did is that I think rock and roll loosened, you know, I think the personal computer, I think, in many ways is, is sort of the step, the stepchild of rock and roll, um, you know, maybe what it sort of did was that it loosened up arbitrary social convention. Uh, things sort of accumulate over the years that, that don't necessarily suit daily reality. And rock and roll, in many ways, you know, it, it loosens some, you know, certain people up at least for a certain period of time. I think maybe when you look at uh, the, like the fall of the Berlin Wall and all that kind of thing, you know, that was very much a rock and roll kind of expression. And maybe what's going on in the Middle East, you know, these, these kids just want to yeah. rock and roll. They, they want you know, this, this feeling of freedom. And, and then their governments, these di- dictatorships that they're under. You know, so maybe that's been the, you know, that they see this whole, you know, even though Woodstock and all the rest of it is, is, is 90% mythology. It's it's a potent mythology, you know. It's something that has uh, you know a resonance, in, you know, in their aspirations. Uh, you know, maybe it loosened up 
maybe some of these racial uh, boundaries that I think were very much, you know, very difficult for the for society to maintain. You know, that that particularly, you know, in the '60s with with Motown and and mm-hmm. and Stax and and Soul and all these sort of things, it really did. Because don't forget that there was a really violent uh, reaction to rock and roll, uh, you know, as being black music, that it was a mm-hmm. corrupt, corrupting influence. But I think, you know, as the music increased in, in quality and sophistication in the, in the 60s and 70s, unfortunately, you know, my personal opinion, it took a, a major, re, you know, hairpin turn backwards with, with the rise of rap and hip-hop. But, you know, people would argue against that as well. I mean, right. you know, maybe I'm just somebody who was raised on, you know, people like Stevie Wonder mm-hmm. and Aretha Franklin, you know, a little more quality, a little more sophisticated than... Kanye West or whatever, but are you just maybe an old fogey? <laughs> well, you know, listen, no, I'm very. I feel. I, I don't want to say proud because yeah. you know, that's that's a foolish thing to say. But I'm very grateful because I've I became very aware at a very young age, and I was very. I mean, I remember coming home from nursery school, and my aunt was crying because the Beatles had just broken up. Yeah. You know, and I knew who the Beatles were, and I knew what that meant, and you know, I'm very grateful for that that I've been able to sort of experience all these different waves right. of popular culture, you know, and, and really be there for when it meant something, you know, when mm-hmm. it meant something to people. And I, well, I don't know n- if it does anymore. You now know? the question is going to be, how, how does Christopher Knowles continue to get his fix? <laughs> well, listen, I mean, I am, a, I am a geek, all right? <laughs> I mean, that is my, my mm-hmm. dirty secret. I am a, a total fanboy, uh, sci-fi nut. Uh, and it's interesting because I've sort of fallen into this whole uh, niche of looking at esoteric streams and, and sort of sci-fi and everything like that. Mm-hmm. But it's it's just it's it's almost like an accident of history because really what my great love is is just you know the the stuff itself. I'm just a huge escapist fanboy geek and 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 very grateful for being so. Again, I don't want to say I'm proud, but it's. That is, uh, that's how I get my fix, and it's, it's, well, I'm, I'm going to look forward to a post on the, um, significance, metaphysical significance of Ultraman on your site, (laughs) so I want to be looking for that. (laughs) And I'm going to, I'm going to suggest you get your, (laughs) well, I'm going to suggest you get your fix every week of Transcendental Experience on Future Quake, okay? (laughs) And, uh, and, uh, we certainly welcome you back here at any time. In closing, how can our listeners get a hold of your book? They can get a hold of my book on Amazon, and okay. you know I don't know. Are there any bookstores left anymore? I'm not sure. I was uh, going to say Barnes and Nobles, but didn't they just say they were shutting down? No, no that was no, Borders. Borders, yeah. Just give them time. Yeah, they'll, they'll shut down. The Secret History of Rock and Roll: The Mysterious Roots of Modern Music. Christopher Knowles. You also have uh, your blog site, The Secret Sun. Yes, sir. And how can people get to that site? Uh, the Secret Sun, uh, actually, it's secretsun.blogspot.com. Okay, and we'll put that link on our uh, archive of shows here. And I want to thank you so much for spending such good quality time with us here. Oh, it was my pleasure. And thank you for being so accommodating, by the way. Well, and vice versa, and really appreciate that. would like to have you back for your next work, and uh, look forward to seeing that. I hope you felt welcome here. Uh, I understand you've seen, a, you've heard a few Future Quake shows. Yeah, and let me just say, I mean, you guys are 
are, I, I like to say there there are people who I encounter in my life who are true Christians, and and I would say that uh, you guys are definitely fit the bill. I don't think we've ever gotten a better compliment on this show. No. And, and <laughs> I was going to say I know tons of people who would vehemently disagree. In ending six years, you know, well, I don't I know appreciate what the compliment. I don't know what Jesus' impression of that would be, but yeah. I tell you what, I'll take it. And yeah. you could you could have thought of a nicer thing to say to us, and we appreciate well, it. Well, it's a, yeah. a dying breed. <laughs> well, uh, we're we're trying to get better at it. We're still trying to figure out how to be good at that. So uh, we appreciate any feedback you have for us. And you're welcome to come back and uh, lay some truth out here on us. And uh, um, be sure to check in the to the Future Quake show, too. If there's anything you'd like to hear, too, have there been any shows you particularly enjoyed on Future Quake? You know, I used to listen to you guys uh, every week. I, I haven't been doing a lot of podcasting because I've been doing a lot of writing, and it's sort of hard to listen, you know, listen there's to a, talk shows. And, and That's you know, a waste of time. There's nothing into that writing kind of thing. <laughs> I would, I would, I would I, I waste feel, that. I feel I feel very guilty because yeah. of a lot of podcasts that I used to follow, and and I guess well, yeah. your show I, I I would follow. Um, what was one of my favorite ones? Uh, I won't put you on the spot. You can let right. me know sometime. Thank you for letting uh, me up. Look. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the secret history of rock and roll. Uh, highly recommend all of our listeners uh, get it. It is a great reference book. Uh, fascinating, and I, I tell you, I love reading liner notes on record albums, and the second half of the book is like non-stop liner notes of the significance and how to put all the bands that if you grew up in, in gener- our generation into context, and I highly recommend it to all of our listeners. And again, thank you so much, Christopher. Any hints at your next work, your next project? Uh, none. None whatsoever. Okay. Well, we'll look forward to it. <laughs> Keep us posted. Keep us on your uh, list, you know, press releases and things, so we'll know when to get you back in here, okay, or anything you want to talk about. Absolutely. Hey, thank you so much. And, All right, thank uh, you, guys. God bless. Keep looking for the truth. Thank you. Okay. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom ding along a ram ram bionic. Man, you're full circle. I'm impressed with yeah. your memory on that after that long interview that we had there. With uh, Christopher Knowles, author of The Secret History of Rock and Roll, uh, talking about the evidence of the mystery religions revived in modern music. Uh, the book has a lot of very interesting condensed information on the mystery mm-hmm. religions. We can't cover all of it here on the interview, mm-hmm. yeah. but I really, really recommend it. It's pretty neat. Mm-hmm. Anything else struck you about our discussion? Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I necessarily buy it per se, but I really like his distinction between the mystery religions and the Gnostic religions. I hadn't really viewed that yeah. in, in a... Yeah, you know there there probably is some sort of a split there. Yeah, um, I have to think about that more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very very interesting. I, I, I enjoyed my time. Over. I didn't mean to be too leading in some of my questions about some of the dirty laundry of our fellow evangelicals. Well, but I figure that's that's my prerogative to do that. You know, I don't. You know, that's a very that's a very interesting thing. I I go back and forth of that. You know, there's a there's yeah. a point in time to 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 rally round your brothers and sisters, but there's a point at time point in time where they've sort of declared themselves. Yeah. Uh, heretics by their walk. Well, you can sort of see what's on my mind, I guess, because yeah. I take information like this and suddenly it's, it sticks in my mind. Mm-hmm. Boy, that's sort of like what I'm seeing going on in the church today. Yeah. Because that's what we look at every sure. week. And so, yeah. I think there's a lot that history could tell us. And I think even outside voices of people outside the regular church circle, mm-hmm. a lot of people say, well, th- their opinions don't count. How, you know, how would they know what's going on? Well, those are sometimes the most astute observations. Yeah, unfortunately so. In studying military systems, 
Uh, a lot of times what you find is with large uh, large systems like that where you're required to work like work as a team, mm-hmm. uh, what ends up happening is two things. A is the person in question gets their identity from being part of the organization, and yeah. from that stems the idea that your morality is not – your morality and self-righteousness mm-hmm. is not no longer measured by an outside mm-hmm. uh, standard metric. It like, skews it, in other yeah, words. Like, like what would yeah. be in Christianity, you open the Bible and these, yeah. you know, thou yeah. shalt not kill, those yeah. sort of things. Uh, what ends up happening is the standard metric becomes whatever is culturally acceptable inside that group. And yeah. you you – to ask questions outside of that group is is seen by fiat yeah. to be unrighteous. Right. You know, well, in, in, in an ideal world, we could say, well, shoot, we, we should only have commentary from fellow believers that are spirit filled. So the Holy Spirit can tell well, us sure. things ideally. But as you know, as well as I, sadly, I think many of the feedback we get in the whole Christian world back and forth with each other, sometimes very little of it is Holy Spirit. Yeah. Uh, you know. And I worry about us, what we say, on how much of it is. Rocks and donkeys, rocks and donkeys. (laughs) God can speak through rocks and donkeys. Well, now that's an interesting song. I haven't heard that one. Well, it's true. Um, I I guess just for my closing, I would say that what I mentioned earlier about recognizing the folks who put together the mystery religions, and, and they may have had dark forces assist them in that. Uh, in fact, it may have been manifest during the, the mysteries while mm-hmm. they were performed. Um, they hit on a formula that put people in a state, and that state was something that must have been incredibly popular. I mean, it, to me, it opens a door from, from our view toward occult influence and activity, mm-hmm. but it was a formula that I can't help but see whether they did it intentionally or accidentally. They're backing back into that in a lot of our churches today, <laughs> and they're getting the response back from people. Sure. And they assume that, well, that's God blessing this, one of the but question is which God? Yeah, one of the things that I've noticed, uh, we've got a we've got a brother who listened to our show, who's been very active in getting to classical, getting down into the nitty gritty of classical apologetics, mm-hmm. and using that to you know to yeah. to politely confront people, yeah. and uh, in in being sort of a fly on the wall in various conversations he's had, he's like, it's like it's like watching you know watching a master swordsman, you know, fight mm-hmm. an unarmed blindfolded guy. Uh, and unfortunately, Christianity, it dawned on me, unfortunately, Christianity has lost lost their um, footing in truth. Mm-hmm. It's like it's it's those ideas are so foreign, certainly to the world, mm-hmm. because the world has to reach out into unreason to grab mm-hmm. to grasp that meaning. Well, to have a surety of truth, you have to invest time and discipline sure. to build that knowledge foundation, you know, test it, do all that kind of stuff to be able to do that. And that would cut into our entertainment time quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we're willing to sacrifice that entertainment time. Well, you know, the, probably the best place to store your Louisville Slugger is in your television. So, <laughs> Well, speaking of Louisville Slugger, uh, Merv, would you come in and tell our listeners how to contact us at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. 
okay, we need to call it a day. I don't know how a disembodied head could bat a 480 average. But, but he, he does. does. That's what's amazing. That's amazing. Um, ladies and gentlemen, come back next week for uh, another strange and different Future Quake show. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Sayonara. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake.